So, okay, so um, we're just we're just doing some last minute planning. So, um, so the way, what we're gonna do is, um, I'm just gonna read for a little bit. And you, just, just come, yeah, yeah. Here's Michelle. <laughs> Okay, first I just I just have to say this is um, thank you all for coming. This is yeah. kind of crazy. I have um, my former students here, my best friend from summer camp when I was nine, my boyfriend from college, there's, uh, my friends from my job. So there's this is and actually some people who just came, which is really fun too. Yeah, so just a couple. So um, so that's really fun, and thank you all for being here. Thanks also to Skylight Books for doing this, and to Zoe. Ruiz for um, planning it and making it happen. Thank you. Um, and for Michelle, who I am, I'm totally crushing out. Michelle, is, I'm a huge <laughs> fan of Michelle. And if you haven't read her book, Black Wave, yet her most recent book, it's incredible. And um, you you have to buy it and read it immediately. So um, okay, so that's my advertisements. And um, so I'm just going to read um, the very beginning of the book, and then we're going to talk a little bit, and then I'll just read a little more. We'll all be over painlessly. <laughs> okay, so this is um, chapter one. Um, our parents had failed five months in a row to make a baby, and father was growing frustrated. He couldn't figure out what our mother was doing wrong. For his Christmas Hanukkah present, she gave him a skiing vacation in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. She secretly thought it would give her a break from him, but he insisted she join him so he could continue his spermatozoan campaign. At first, it was tranquil. They stayed in a cabin in front of a hot springs. Father, the chef owner of a health food restaurant in Santa Cruz, California, made whole wheat chapatis on a camping stove the night they arrived. Mother, an elementary school teacher, suggested they take turns describing the highlights and lowlights of their day. The next morning, they awoke and went down to the hot springs where the old man who ran the place floated naked in an inner tube, wielding a ski pole to spear any debris that had fallen into the springs the day before. Our father thought the steaming water might damage his potency, so he did his 250 push-ups on the edge while our mother slipped in. Mother saw a mountain goat scrambling along the cliff above the pool. But that was the end of the tranquil part of the vacation. Father was an experienced backcountry skier, and mother began disappointing him on their first day out. He tried to help her. He told her she was leaning too far forward, locking her knees, raising her heels too high, holding her poles too far out. The conditions were icy, and she fell and skidded on the crusty snow while he made perfect whirling turns down every slope, then called up complicated directions through clenched teeth. Have we mentioned what they look like? He, blonde curly hair, a gladiator face, Roman nose and cleft chin, and then a wrestler's body, no neck, all chest, bandy legs. Our mother is skinny, long neck, long arms and fingers, wide flat hips. She's like a curvaceous paper doll, the curves all in the edges. Because she was ovulating, at night they continued their sexual exertions. She lay there while he performed his quick, efficient operation. She felt, that she, she felt like she was the mortar and he the pestle. On the fourth day, they woke in the morning to a pretty blanket of powder over everything. Our father was elated. The old man floating in the inner tube said the new conditions were dangerous, but father said the old geezer didn't know his ass from a hole in the ground. In early afternoon, they came to a slope that was more like a cliff. 
She was exhausted, on the verge of tears, her face cold. Her face was cold. (laughs) Her face was cold and wind-burned. Her legs were shaking and her arms ached. She said she'd wait at the top for him. Father said, you're hysterical, irrational. Just follow my directions. He told her she needed to grow a spine. Man up, he said. He continued his pep talk. Finally, she said, okay, fine, I'll do it. He wiped her nose with his sleeve and tapped his fingers twice on her forehead. Think, buddy, think, he said. Keep those knobby knees tucked. Pivot on the pole. She looked down the smooth white drop. She allowed herself to slip over the edge. She fell head first on her second turn. Her poles clattered away. One ski came off. Her left cheek was scraped raw from growing through the ice just underneath the snow. She sat up. She could hear father yelling down at her. There was a kind of whump sound, big and hollow, like a bass drum that reverberated uncomfortably in her heart. She looked for father, but he was skiing into the line of trees. Then the upper slope detached itself and began to slide towards her. The snow turned liquid. She tried to swim with it like he'd instructed, but it poured over her. She couldn't keep her head free. She woke. Uh, curled in a cold fist. The snow was heavy, dense, pressed on top of her and packed inside her nose and ears and mouth. It was so dark she didn't know if her eyes were open or closed. There were tiny sparks and frisons of dizzying light. She thought she might faint. She spit snow out and heard whimpering, little mews. She realized it was coming from her. She waited for father to rescue her. She counted to a hundred six times. It felt as if her lungs were shrinking, her throat squeezing closed. Please, she thought. She couldn't remember what number she was on. Finally, she thought, I'll just go to sleep. Her tears made two warm roads down her face. She exhaled, readied herself to give way for the final time. But then she remembered that there might be life inside her. She pictured a tiny mouth opening in her pelvis. She was sure it was there, starving for air, desperate for breathing room. She moved one finger, the middle one. Then she moved her shoulders. As soon as she began to try to escape, that pelvic need sizzled through her, shocked her awake. She began to roil. She bucked and shook her head and arched and reared up into blue sky, gasping and crying, covered in powder and not alone. Because that is the moment we came to consciousness in an explosion of bright, bright blue. Not one, but two mouths opening in perfect synchronicity. Twins startled into being. We immediately knew every thought our mother ever had. Her past, her present, everything that is except our future. This book is so good. Look at where is the cover? Because I have an advanced reader's copy, not to brag, which is very exciting. So it means I got to read it before everybody else. But this is the really beautiful book as it exists with its final brightly colored cover. It's such a crazy book. It goes so many wild and beautiful places. It has like such, the story has such restraint. It's seriously the pacing and you know you're on this track. And yet you have no idea what's going to happen. It goes to so many really deep emotional and, dare I say, mystical places and historical places. (laughs) And we we don't need to talk about crystals. Although I did have a question about your your mystical beliefs. But um, we'll see if we have time for it. 
um, I just learned that Mika doesn't really care for mysticism. What? She feels misunderstood now. I don't yeah. know. Maybe she, maybe it's maybe I mean it's hard to have read that book and believe that you and think that you don't no, I give do. a fig I, about mysticism. I, I yeah. Cuz there is a lot. You think this like a, a you know a, a narrating twin fetus twin fetal twin. There's even there's much more in that even. Yeah. So this is such a big story and I felt curious. I wanted to understand like where how did it erupt in your body? Like have you been walking around with the story for a long time working it out or yeah. how did you I mean there's so many different things to write about. How did you come to this particular story? Yeah. Um, well, um, I, I've been writing it a long time. It actually took me, I, I say 10 years, and that's really actually a conservative estimate. It might have taken me a few more years than that. Um, and it came to me, um, well, there's sort of a kind of um, several things kind of came together at the same time. And there was, on one hand, there was this kind of this um, desire to play around with point of view, which probably sounds super boring, but I was I was really interested in a big storytelling voice and in um, a first person that was um, unreliable and not exactly a first person. And so I thought I really liked the idea of um, like a, a fetus inside of the main character because it, was, it is the main character, but it's not the main character. There's this little bit of distance, so it's um, a really a fun point of view and I also wanted to play around I'd been reading a lot of books that I admired that had big storytelling voices and I wanted to do try out that so I, there was that and then um, okay so then at this around the same time I first stumbled on this book The Captivity and Restoration of Mrs. Mary Rowlandson which is um, a 17th century captivity narrative which I guess we're going to talk about later but that um, I became extremely obsessed with that book um, and then at the same time um, the book reminded me a lot of what was going on um, in the world which was um, right um, soon it was a few years after 9-11 and the, it was the war on terror and the war um, in Iraq and it seemed that there were tons of parallels between what was going on in the 17th century and um, what was going on then and then also, finally, I'm super interested in um, utopian experiments. I grew up on a, a commune, and so the idea of like two twins inside um, in utero really seemed like the ultimate utopian experiment. And so <laughs> I wanted to. I just wanted to write about that. Wow. I wondered, having read um, Pagan Time, her amazing memoir of growing up on the commune, if if it had inspired Lonely Rincon a little bit, the oh, place where yeah. the road, where it, the book takes place. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Definitely. Yeah. How, I mean, how can you shake that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, what great stuff to work with. Um, I, um, somebody just asked me today if my writing felt if, if, if the having had a kid has started to influence my writing and I don't think that it has and I just wondered when did that influence begin to influence your writing because I feel like it yeah. certainly is influenced by the by the yeah. fact that you've had children like yeah. and you know this experience probably with this book I really yeah I think so yeah I mean, um I I think I, I didn't think about this at the time. So this is I'm I have a blended family, and so there's um, my partner has two kids, and I have two kids, and so um, and we've had them for a long time. So we had four kids, and I didn't think about this when I was doing the twins, but um, the kind of, the idea of doubling and that suddenly there were. 
twice as many children as I <laughs> had imagined that there would be and I kind of planned for. And and also the, the main character, Evie, it's not just her own twins that are inside of her, but she's kind of thronged by children. There's like all these children in the book um, and that she's kind of, she's a teacher of small children, young children, and she's, there's all these kids with near, neighbors that are, she's kind of glomming onto her. And so that idea of being kind of overwhelmed by a lot of children, I think, was very emotionally resonant to me. <laughs> so, so probably that. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. You write so yeah. good about the state of being pregnant. I loved reading about Evie's body and just like uh, yeah. her experience of it and just yeah. getting so huge. And I, I really loved that you had made her have twins because she was just so giant. And I yeah. just really liked that a lot. I think lot. I felt like that when I was... Did, did you like being pregnant? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, cause yeah, I, I was really into I hated it. it. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah, I can understand why anyone would hate it. Yeah, yeah. It's... I just didn't like. I thought I was going to be like you. I thought I was going to love it. Yeah. And then I, I really hated it, which was a surprise. I thought I was like Earth Mother. Yeah, it's going to be fabulous. But I just kept getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And, um, I didn't feel like an Earth effects. Mother, but I did feel. I felt more like there was like a freak show experiment happening to totally, my science experiment, totally. and I was sort of into it. I was like, "What is happening?" I should have been in that mode. You know, yeah. it was. It wasn't very it is earthy, like that. but I, mean, I like that about freakish. it. Yeah, yeah, it's very freakish. Yeah, and I think that's the twin thing too. And I'm not a twin, and I don't have twins, and so that. But just that idea of twins was really fascinating to me. Of that doubling, and that seems so magical yeah. and, and crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like how much you write about. There's a lot about hunger in the book. This through line of hunger, Mary Rowlandson's hunger, and yeah. the sort of controversy that. Well, that's something that gets really judged by the people who are... I mean, we'll talk a lot more about this part of the book because it's so fascinating. But, but Evie's so hungry and, yeah. and having these crazy like sleepwalking incidents where she's kind of coming to eating and what um what I just want to know about like oh eating yeah, yeah like what yeah. like what did you think what was your thoughts bringing that and did you yeah. did you know that was like going to be something you wanted to explore when you created this or as writing about pregnancy sort of happened did it just sort of be like oh yeah well I think well, well I like to eat but <laughs> but also I think that's um I think that's like a this is, you know, there's this, there's a, you know, well, there's this classic thing around women and eating, and women are not, you know, supposed to, you know, we're supposed to be in control all the time about how much we eat, and um, a lot of judgment around that, mm-hmm. and then, um, and I think for me, it was really a, a metaphor for desire, and controlling your desires, and that, um, uh, Especially women, m- women who are mothers are are always supposed to give way, and that you know other people's desires, especially their children's. But in just make it even broader, like everybody else's desires are supposed to come first. So I was really interested in the idea. Uh, and my character Evie, when she starts the book, um, she's she's a classic example of that. Like she just completely puts everyone else first, and she thinks that's her way to sort of um, be a good person and. As the book goes along, more and more her own desires start taking precedent. She gets hungry and hungrier. She doesn't in the beginning of the book. She doesn't even really remember to eat, and then she just gets more and more into food. And at one point, she's eating like a mixing bowl full of pasta, just like shoveling it in. um, She's taking other people's husbands, and it's just it's it's intense. (laughs) I love that you just linked that because it's so. I mean, it's so clear in the book that there's a link to it. But um, what did um, did you have crazy food cravings when you were pregnant? Oh, um, I you know when I, what I one thing I remember is um, 
So I, I actually had more like repulsions. Like I couldn't stand the smell of garlic suddenly. Oh, so sad. And I, I made my um, husband at the time like cook out on the porch on a cook camping <laughs> stove. And it was bad. Um, I don't. I, I definitely ate a ton. And I, I, you know, I um, had fun with that. I, I remember also that I wore like I, I thought I looked really fabulous. So I decided to wear a giant purple jumper like most of my second pregnancy and I thought I looked so fabulous and when I look back at the photographs I just look like this giant grape like a completely <laughs> globular grape but I thought it was beautiful and... I thought you were that sounds amazing <laughs> that sounds amazing yeah. yeah um well I will ask you I mean the there's such a um there's such a tug of mysticism through the whole book. I mean, there's things that happen that really make you ask questions about past lives and reincarnation yeah. and ghosts and spirit possession and all this stuff. And I wanted to know what your... is that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm... That's a hard question. Yeah. Let me think. I, okay. I think that um, I'm really, I'm I'm really pulled to the past. Like I, I don't know. I maybe everybody is. I don't know if that's unique to me, but I'm really fascinated by um, the past. What happened in the past by. Uh, the way people lived um, in the past that was that the way that they were different the way that what, what they wore what they ate like all of that material culture um, I find really fascinating and I and I do feel haunted by that um, I, haunted it, how like like I just feel like it sticks in your mind maybe it's and, obsessional like yeah. I, I feel I feel yeah it sticks in my mind super I'm super curious like I um I know, like, a lot of my students are really into fantasy writing and fantasy, and I think in the way that they are longing and obsessional about other worlds is the way I feel about history. Like, I'm really obsessionally interested in um, how, just say, for example, wearing a corset, how that changed your life, to be to be wearing that all the time, and the way you breathe, and the way you move, and the way you see yourself, like, just um, what you ate, how that, that made you different, um everything, you know, um, medicine, um, gender, culture, all that stuff. So, um, I guess I just think about a lot. I, in terms of mysticism, I guess it feels to me more like a metaphor than like, I don't literally, okay, this is, this happened. So once when I was in grad school, I was, um, I lived alone. It's the only time that I've lived all by myself for a year. It was only a year because I always had roommates and stuff. And so, um, I was living by myself. I was walking down the street and I saw this old chair on the street and I just, like lugged it up, picked it up. It was an antique chair. Someone had thrown it out. I put it in my house. Uh, I liked it. I, then I was cooking like an hour later and I turned around and I saw this, um, there was a woman sitting in the chair. And um, she she was um, she looked like she was from the 19th century. Like she had she she was dressed like I saw everything like her shoes, her dress, her face. Um, it was really clear. And I don't believe in ghosts. I'm not. I've, I was just telling Michelle I'm not super mystical or anything like that. Um, we were having an astrological conversation yeah. at dinner as one does, and, and I, we learned that we were maybe killing Mika. You know, I was fine, but I but I I am a little bit skeptical, but I. 
I, but I did, that, that happened, and I don't know what that was, I don't know, so, I, so I guess that's a kind of, that's a haunting, and that's a kind of, actually in the novel, Evie is sitting in a chair, and suddenly Mary Rollinson is sitting in the chair, so I, obviously now, this is the first moment that I'm thinking this, that's probably where, where I got that. Yeah. <laughs> probably, do you think? <laughs> yeah. I think so. okay, wow. So it's probably more that I'm just much more repressed than, than you are about my mysticism. No, I don't know about that. This book is anything but repressed. Um, do you want to read uh, Mary oh. Rollinson part of the book? Yeah. Cool. So, okay, so this, so the other part of the book, so Evie, the character that was just um, buried in an avalanche and um, buries herself, she um, ends up running away to another, um, to the East Coast. She's from the West Coast and starting and trying to start a new life for herself and she gets she's a substitute teacher and she's te- they tell her that she needs to teach um, the captivity and restoration of Mrs. Mary Rollinson she gets totally obsessed um, with that book and both in a, like a repulsed way and also in a she's both attracted and repulsed to this um, woman who is both um, repulsive and attractive and so she starts having these maybe visions or maybe dreams um, about her and it could be because her doctor tells her that you know in pregnancy people have vivid dreams or it could be that she's um, actually having um, kind of visions where she is um, Mary Rollinson and because the twins are narrating the twins call um, they 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 use they say mother and that's both Mary Rollinson and Evie um, in the dream. Okay, so mother is both of them. Okay, so this is this is her first vision that she has. She's in a smoky log cabin trying to breathe. Smoke stings her eyes into slits and pinches her throat closed. She's pressed everywhere by people and dogs and smoke and the smell of urine and sweat. Everyone else is coughing and gagging too, arguing about whether they should make a run for it, arguing whether it is better to die by an Indian club or from smoke or immolation. Mother's sister is crying out to herself or to God. The seven long-legged dogs pace and cower and whine, ears flattened, tails down. Mother thinks, fuck it. She lifts her blue skirt to move over to where her 13-year-old son Joseph crouches with a gun before a tiny window. Do you have anything in there, she asks him. He shakes his head. She goes to a cupboard, reaches way back in the back where she keeps her dessert forks in a wooden box covered with a cloth, the ones her mother brought from England. She and Joseph crush them in their fists and tamp them down the barrel of the gun. She pulls the thin rug up, heaves open the root cellar door underneath. The faces of the five children inside look up at her, round and white as china plates. It smells putrid of rotting potatoes. Mother reaches down, and her daughter Sarah climbs up the wooden ladder. All will be well, Mother says to her. Mind me. Then she heaves Sarah onto her hip. Sarah buries her face into Mother's neck, rests her lips there. Sarah is solid, and as soon as Mother picks her up, she can feel the burden of her like a sack of corn. Cornmeal, how she had grown almost too big to carry. Mother begins to untie her pocket, an embroidered apron that holds her sewing things inside, but then she changes her mind. Her chest is thrumming with anxiety, but she tells her son calmly, we'll make a run for it. She puts him in the lead with the gun, pushes him in front of her as if he is already a man to give him courage. The low door opens up into the chaos of gray February sky, no walls anywhere. She stands before the doorway in the rush of cold air, thinking, perhaps not. 
But Abraham, her sister's boy, desperate for clean air, pushes from behind, and they stumble out into the open. Abraham runs, bent over, heading downhill towards the stream. He's shot. They'd been teasing him lately, because since he turned 14, a sparse mustache had come in, and without realizing it, he's always wearing it, smoothing it like a beaver pelt. He falls. He screams out, my leg. One of them jogs over and clubs him on the head twice, passionless, like splitting wood. Mother's son Joseph, just in front of her, stares at where his cousin lies. She grabs him behind the neck. It's wet there. Joseph, towards the bridge, she says. Then an Indian stands in front of them. Joseph raises his gun, but it won't fire. Joseph begins to cry and fiddle with the flintlock. The Indian holds his hand out for the gun. Joseph gives it to him. They watch the Indian check the barrel, empty out the forks onto the dirty snow, fluidly reload with a lead ball. Then he aims at mother. Joseph knocks the gun with the side of his arm as it goes off. Sarah screams. She screams, Mama, it burns. And like an echo, mother feels burning in her own side. No, mother says sharply, and instinctively puts her hand over Sarah's hand, which is over Sarah's stomach. Mother's legs begin to shake, but she doesn't drop her baby. The screaming and smoke and noise move into the distance. Up close, there is only an intense heat boiling between herself and her little girl. Sarah pulls her hand away from mother's side. The plump hand cups blood, and there's blood spreading through Sarah's apron over her round stomach, blood wet and warm between them. Mother thinks, please, Lord, mend this. Mother turns to go back inside the house. Her sister blocks the door, smoke roiling out of the garrison and around her as if it were coming out of her head. She stares at mother. Mother says to her, or thinks to say to her, Sister, he can mend this. Let's go back inside. But mother's sister doesn't hear or doesn't agree, perhaps because her son lies shot and beaten to death on the ground. Mother thinks to say to her sister, The hem of the world has ripped open, the seam has broken, and things I cannot fathom have fallen through. But with his help, we can still sew it up. Please, sister, please help me. We can fix this together. I have my needle and thread in my pocket. It's not too late. Her sister says, Lord, let me die too. As if in answer, a lead ball enters her sister's head just above the ear, the force banging her head against the door jamb. She slides to the ground and sits there, not moving. One of the painted ones grabs mother's arm, his face all red, but not with blood. With a cape fashioned from raccoon pelts around his neck, their ringed tails swinging when he moves, and black tattoos all over his naked chest, and things hanging from his neck, little bags and animal teeth, and smelling of rancid animal grease, and shiny from the grease, and carrying a club, rounded and polished, the size of a baby's head at the top, smeared with blood and blonde hair, and with one half of his head shaved and one half long and loose, as if he didn't understand simple symmetry. Everything about him seems to tell that he is closer to an animal, a bear, and a lion than to her. This monster has his fingers around her forearm. Now, she thinks, her throat squeezing and squeezing, she turns Sarah's wet face into her armpit. Now. Parlez-vous français, he says. And when she doesn't answer, he tries again, in hesitant English, his voice so low and reasonable it could have been her own. Come, go along with us. I am Quinnipin. I am yours. That's it.
You're such a good writer. It's like such a dumb thing to say, but you're just like, whoa. It's like really stunning writing. That passage made me cry when I read it. Oh, really? Yeah, I just felt really like, uh, I just, I don't know. You, it, it was so vivid, you know, and I just, I, I don't know, I felt it. It was really great. Um, I didn't know until I finished this book and fell into a Google K-hole that Mary Rowlandson is a real person. Um, and all of that was like a real situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know, like when I'm reading it, I'm thinking that this happened like her that you know I'm kind of describing just pretty much what happened did you feel like possessed when you were writing it I mean you yeah, get totally. in there so deeply it's yeah. like I mean the reason I'm seeing it so vividly is because you're seeing it so vividly like what was that like for you to write there's more passages like that as she traces as as Evie kind of goes finds herself in these states where she's communing with Mary Rowlandson I don't, yeah, I don't, um, I was totally taken with that book. Like the, as soon as I read it, how did you even find it? I don't know. I, I just, I just stumbled on it. I, like, as I said, I'm really interested in, in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had my, my first novel was, uh, took place in the 19th century. So I was really immersed in the 19th century. And then I was interested in the colonial period and I just kind of stumbled on it. But I think, I think, well, for me, I had this idea of what, um, 17th century, um, writing sounded like in this kind of like very archaic, distant, um, very convoluted wordy voices and um her voice is nothing like that like she when I first read it I just felt like I'd been punched in the stomach or slapped or something very violent like she her she's really um has anybody read it yeah so it's she's right so she's she's really down to earth she's real she's unapologetic she it's mostly about how she's starving she's um the people who've taken her um are also starving although she doesn't seem to realize that but she she, there's not there's no food it's winter um the colonial the colonial army has burnt all the native people's land so they have nothing to eat she's starving with them and so most of the book is kind of like a catalog of what she eat what she can find to eat like three acorns horse hoof like that and it's um there's just something incredibly ugly about it and powerful in the way i that she okay so like she literally takes a horse hoof out of a child's mouth and the child's trying to eat it and she eats it herself because she wants to survive and i i felt like i had never i had never read that before i never read a woman um uh, so unapologetically bent on her own survival, and um, also it's like she's super racist. She doesn't understand anything about um, very little about the native world she's living in, or why you know why they're doing what they're doing. Um, so it's it's just just a really shocking, ugly, powerful um, book, and I was really became obsessed with it yeah yeah i mean you can feel your obsession in it and it's yeah. amazing it's like i it's contagious you know that, that's that's why i ended up on google for so long yeah. reading about king philip's war and like yeah. all this and i'm from new england and i guess it's just testament to my poor education No, because i'm also from new but england and i didn't know they about didn't want us to know yeah. about weed yeah exactly exactly yeah. yeah so um thank you so <laughs> yeah so weed is this incredible you should google her she you is, should google her she is this incredible figure so you know we all all know about Pocahontas, right? There's Disney. We all know about Pocahontas, but Weedamu was the leader of um, King, this war called King Philip's War, um, which was a, 
you know, the more per capita, more um, there was more people died in King Philip's War than in the Civil War. It's like the most violent war that's been fought in you know what is now the U.S. Um, and um, and the Native people almost won. And she, um, so she was a Wampanoag sachem. She was the head um, of the Wampanoag Nation, and she's just this incredibly powerful woman. She she hated um, English people, and she had six husbands and um she she's a she was a warrior she's just an, an amazing person and you know she didn't um obviously she didn't write english so there's no the only way we know about her is through um mostly through mary rollinson's descriptions of her mary rollinson hated her because she was her her mistress, you know, she Mary Rollinson was her slave while she was captive. But we, so the little glimpses we get of her is through Mary Rollinson, which is so frustrating because it would be amazing. It to, would be amazing. Yeah. 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 yeah, but 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 weirdly, this is so weird because Mary Rollinson had, I think, had her own obsession with this woman. She hated her, but her descriptions of her are so precise and like down to everything she's wearing, everything she says. She's so, clearly fascinated. Yes. Like doesn't understand. Like yeah. has never seen in her life. Like beheld a woman like that exactly. and doesn't even understand what to do with it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And she just, she calls her like a proud strumpet. She doesn't get like, <laughs> she doesn't get that she, she doesn't even seem to realize that she is the leader of um, the people that she's with. She just thinks she's this lady who likes to dress up a lot and put on airs. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was wondering, you know, so there's this whole controversy in the book that, um, of whether or not Evie is going to teach the captivity of Mary Rowlandson yeah. and, um, the road that she, the community that she's part of, is is very political. Um, a lot of activists and and very just very politicized people, and um, and there's a lot of controversy and, and judgment around it. And I was wondering if you experience any of that in your sort of humanizing of Mary Rollinson. Well, I definitely I've taught Mary Rollinson's book. I've taught the book before, and my students mostly hate it. Like they yeah. hate her, and they're not sympathetic at all. In fact, I was teaching Captivity and Restoration of Mary Rollinson last spring in a really like 300 person lecture class, and this woman stood up um, and she yelled, "Black Lives Matter! I wish Mary Rollinson was dead!" And in the middle of the class, and so because Mary Rollinson is super racist, and she was com- she was just disgusted by her, um, she was disgusted by her. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, I've definitely had there's um, that you know I've definitely experienced that of students feeling really turned off by her and I understand that too. And what yeah. what do you like what is your response when you try to explain to people yeah. like what you feel is like redemptive in it or yeah. worth worth paying attention to? Yeah, I don't even know if it's re- redemption. It's just um I guess I just try to explain to them, you know, my own like why I'm so interested in this figure of the, of her being a really complicated basically this. Basically I think that, you know, if we were going to trace, like, um, U.S. literature, I think it should be traced back to Mary Rollinson because I think that what's happening in her book is kind of the central wound um, of what it means to be an American. Like, I, you know, all the kind of, like, violent racial tensions and um, othering and misunderstandings and... Um, desire to survive and belief that we're God's chosen like all of the all of the kind of stuff that we've inherited seems to me to be like in this kind of 
tight fist of this book. And so um, it's not that I... Uh, I mean, actually, I do admire her because she's got a lot of grit, but um, I, I, I also, she's also a person of her time, you know. And um, But I just think that that book is so um, seminal to what to... It should be seminal to U.S. literature, and but nobody reads it. Nobody... I mean, everybody says, because Hemingway said everybody goes back to Huckleberry Finn, which is annoying. <laughs> I, lo- I mean, I love Huckleberry Finn, but, you know... That's a very different vision of who we are. Yeah. Which I'm, is a kind of not really, that's like, a, we wish we were that person. Yeah. It's really true. I mean, like, having grown up in the East Coast, I know you're from the East Coast, and yeah. just like having grown up in a very, like, white, racist New England enclave, you can really imagine that, like, Mary yeah. Rowlandson is like your great, 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 great grandmother back there who, yeah. you know, it all, it all started in this nation with her and her people, yeah. you know? Totally, and I'm not, I mean, uh, my parents, my, I mean, my dad's an immigrant, and, you know, my mom's children of immigrants. It's not like I'm from that stock. It's just that I feel like that's what we, that's the world that we inherited. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the narr- those are the narratives that have come down to us, yeah. whether, we, whether we've read it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that, um, that was really great about learning, that, that, it, that your book was a portal to me kind of learning more about all of this history is there's like all this stuff all over New England where I feel like I can almost go into your book if I want to. There's like plaques of this, you know, just like all these <laughs> little monuments about all these sort of things that totally. you, t- these moments that you're writing about, you know, it yeah. was wild. Um, yeah. So your ending is like, oh my God, I'm like still reeling from your ending. It's like, I, don't, I can't really talk about it, right? Because you all haven't necessarily read the book. So I sure don't want to spoil anything, but I, it's real hard to have my, Mika here and not say any. Is there anything you can say about your choice of ending without revealing, like yeah. what it is? Um, okay, let's see. I so know, right? yeah, yeah. No, I can. Do- yeah. so, okay, so I um, I originally had a different ending. Okay. Um, uh, that was not that ending. And then... Uh, <laughs> has, anyone, has anyone already read the book here? Is there people no, who have just, already read the book? So this is just... Oh, just came out yesterday. So this, this question is just fun for me and nobody else. Okay, okay but, I'll, but this is what I will say, which is that um, I have this colleague, um, Karen Yamashita. Has anybody ever read it? Yeah, she, yeah, isn't she? Yeah, totally. She's, she's fabulous. So we've worked together for, uh, for 20 years, and um, she read my book. My, she read a version of the book, and she was like, I don't, nah, I don't like this ending, and I think you should just make it total chaos. Like, just make it this total, like, bang up everybody together insanity. And so then I said, okay. So then so, <laughs> so that's what he did. And so that, so basically it's her fault, and it's probably more of a Yamashita-like ending than a Perks-like ending, and so you can, you can blame Karen. It yeah. just is a book that starts, I mean, the, the, um, the avalanche scene was so like, oh my God, I can't believe she just made that woman get crushed by an avalanche. You know, it just was so shocking to me. I'm like, God, fiction writers, what the things they do, you know? And and then the ending was also so wild. I was like, oh, the whole book is just such a great and crazy ride. Um, Do you feel like now that you've written it, do you have, do you know, and do you have feelings or thoughts in your heart or your mind of like what does happen to those characters further down the line? Like, do you have? Yeah. You mean like, yeah, so what happens next? Because it kind of ends, um, there's not like a heavy re- resolution. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if you should tell anybody. Yeah, I, I, I guess I, I just, just wanted to I know. I feel like maybe, I would just say that I feel like they're okay. Like I yeah. can't, I'm not mean like everything's going to be okay, like everything's going to work out happily ever after. Right. But I feel like they're really strong people. Yeah. 
and that they will, the, even if it, the, they'll make it. Like, yeah. they, I feel like they are, they're tough. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Know, how, what did you think? Um, I, I, th- I guess I thought the same, you know? Um, yeah, I think I thought the same, but I also thought there was probably a lot of problems ahead of it for everybody. I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Certainly not any kind of smooth sailing. Nah. Yeah. I loved the way that there's this... You don't, you never really know what's going on with Evie. Is she having crazy dreams? Is she possessed? Are there go you know? I, I I loved the way that I just and this just goes back to you saying why you think I think Mary Rollinson's narrative is so important. It's just like it it made the past and the present feel so permeable you know like it's like you if you know you you probably have heard the whole like concept of there being like a spirit world right around us that like there's ghosts or whatever but i think of that the the past is right around us like that that the past is still alive right around us and and that that veil could be so permeable it was a really great metaphor for the way that we are all really stuck in the past and stuck in all of these systems and wars and and colonialism and everything that happened in the past that you know we, we don't so many people don't see that that is actually what's causing everything to happen just the same way that all of the characters on Lonely Rincon don't understand that they're part of this larger yeah reenacting you know yeah. and that we're all kind of reenacting history in this terrible way that's oh, it's such a good book you guys you have to buy it um does anybody have questions for Mika who traveled all the way from Santa Cruz to be here I did yeah I, I think I've never um when you were talking about the perspective of the book I yeah can't think of any other books that are written from the we. I don't even know what to call that. <laughs> oh, first yeah. Person, but if not, you wouldn't really describe this first person. Yeah, first person plural. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> are there any other, um, well, first of all, are there any other models that you use? Do you know of any other? We voices? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, what did you think? Why did you want to use that perspective? Yeah. That's a good question. Um, well, I have I don't think I've read a whole novel, but what first comes to mind is um, Faulkner's A Rose for Emily is in a wee voice, and also um, Ursula Le Guin's um, The Ones Who Walk Away from Amelius is also a wee voice. So I've read stories that are, and I really love those stories. I think it's really about... Um, I think I wanted to do that because I'm really interested in that tension between, and Zoe and I talked about this, but interested in the tension between I and we. Like, what um, I'm interested in what happen, like what happens to the I in a collective, in a you know, in a um, when you're in a kind of utopian experimental situation, or even in any collective, any group situation. Like, how do you balance um, being an individual and being in a group, whether that's a family? or community or culture or whatever that seems super, really I think and because I grew up on a commune I think that that's probably central to my one of the central questions of my life and so I'm I'm always both feeling claustrophobic and longing for connection exactly at, at the same time <laughs> so I think um, so I think I think that's probably where it comes from and I um, I just and I liked I kind of just like the challenge of it you know I also think too that I was really, like, one of my first loves is 19th century um, writing and poetry and stuff. And so, you know how, like, Whitman has that kind of, like, wee voice? Um, and I just, I, I'm attracted to that. I kind of just, you know, ripped Whitman off, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. Do you know um, a lot of people, twins or people with twins? Did, did you do- no, because you're a twin. Yes. Um, so you know a lot about more than this than I do. Um, 
No, I don't. I had, when I was growing up, um, when I was a kid, I had friends who were identical twins. Um, and that was kind of really interesting and fascinating to me. But no, I don't. Um, I don't have it. It feels more to me, and maybe because I don't have personal experience with it, it feels to me kind of like fairy tale, like magical. And like, um, I think one of the characters in the book says, once there's twins, like anything can happen. That's how it sort of feels like to me. Like it's just, it's magic. It just feels magical to me. It feels like, yeah, like a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? Well, if there's truly no questions, I guess we can end it and have Mika sign copies of her book. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for, thanks for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.